Great. Well, today we are starting more prayer. I'm preaching here and at our other congregation down the road at 502 Ashley Road. So once I finish speaking here, I'll be heading down the road. One church, meeting in two locations. And uh, as Rich and Vicky have said, we are leaning into a season of prayer and uh, kicking it off this morning, thinking about more prayer. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we particularly focusing on prayer through from now till the end of November, beginning of December? Uh, everybody prays. Everyone prays. There are no atheists in a falling plane or when cancer strikes. Everyone prays at some point. But for Christians, prayer is different. Prayer for us isn't meant to be just an emergency cord we pull in times of disaster. It's not a spare wheel which we put on when life begins to unravel. It shouldn't be a swear word or a kind of a, a lucky charm touch word. No, prayer for us is so much more meaningful and real and precious than that. Prayer for us is the, or should be, the steering wheel of life. Prayer is the way by which we experience communion with God, by which we come into God's presence and know him and experience him speaking to us. And that means that prayer is something that we Christians want to do, because it's about being in a relationship with our Father in heaven, our Savior Jesus, with the wonderful presence of the Holy Spirit just as we want to talk to someone we love, and uh, maybe it's far away. I was feeling a little bit sad last weekend, and this week my uh, uh, oldest daughter's away in university in London, hasn't been very much back over the summer, and my second daughter Susie we took down to Starlet University in Plymouth last Saturday, and I kind of uh, really just wanting to talk to them, wanting to talk to them because I love them and I miss them, and it's sad that they're not around, and I want to communicate with them and waiting for that FaceTime call or the WhatsApp message or whatever it might be, and prayer... It's meant to be something like that. It's something that you're, you're anticipating, you're looking for. You want that connection. You want that communion, that relationship, that conversation. That's what prayer is for us as Christians. But we all know that prayer can be hard. And there are all kinds of reasons why prayer can be hard. It can be hard because of the weakness of our flesh. That at times we know that we're called to pray, but just the weakness of the flesh means that other things might seem more appealing. It's more appealing to stay in bed or to watch TV or flick through social media or whatever it might be. Prayer can be hard because of the invisibility of God. I know that when I have a FaceTime call with my kids, I'm at least going to see them, what they look like in the flesh at that moment. When we pray, we don't see God in that physical way because God is invisible and that can make prayer challenging at times. Prayer can be hard because of disappointments. Those of us who know and love Jesus will all have stories to tell about times and ways in which we've seen prayer, prayer answered, but equally we'll also have stories to tell about times we've prayed and it seems as if God hasn't answered, and that can be difficult to deal with. And often prayer is difficult just because spiritual warfare we live in a world which is not only physical, it's spiritual. We have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who doesn't want us to commune with God, doesn't want us to be in conversation with our Savior, doesn't want us to be in this place of delight and joy with our Heavenly Father. And there's a spiritual battle going on which can keep us from prayer. So we want to particularly at this time focus on prayer, to pray more, to learn to commune with God more. This year, 2019, our theme, the one-word theme we've been focusing on again and again as a church is this word, more. We believe God spoke to us about believing for more, asking for more, seeing more. And more comes from God 
and it comes from our communion with God. There are lots of other things which we do in church life, excellent things, but there are things which we need to focus on particularly because they're so central, so core to who we are as Christians, and prayer is one of those. So part of my prayer for this season is that we would raise the water level of our prayer life over the next few weeks and months, that we would become more fluent in prayer, more prayerful, more committed to prayer, more experienced it, more joyful in it, more liberated in it, that we would become increasingly a praying people. So we're believing for God, God for more, and we're committing to prayer, more prayer, and then 50 days of prayer as we pray during the week. And we kicked off yesterday with biking the bounds as a bunch of us uh, set off from here and cycled around a 30-mile loop of uh, where different members of the church live. We had a fantastic time. Uh, 20 or so of us started off. Some peeled off as we went. Others joined in. Uh, it was a beautiful morning. And it was just amazing, actually, to see the scope of where we live out to uh, more down in the east through to Lichet, um, Travers in the west, and seeing the whole kind of the variety, the different contexts, different kinds of community, the different kinds of houses, uh, the different industries and places of employment. It was just a wonderful thing to do. So, uh, and uh, God blessed us. We only had one puncture and no accident, so that was a great relief <laughs> to me. Right, I, before I get into the word, I just want to give some coaching tips because as we get going, uh, with 50 days of prayer, as we start to meet in homes this week, uh, I just want to give some tips to how to make those prayer gatherings work. So, some things for you to think about. First thing is, I really want you to commit to being at a prayer gathering. In our 50 days of prayer uh, booklets at the back, there's a list of all the different prayer gatherings that are happening over the next few months. And I'd encourage you to go, if you haven't yet, to go through and to work out which ones you're going to be at each week. If you're a member of the church, we would love you to commit to being at least one prayer gathering each week. Now, no one's going to be checking up on you. There's no sign up for this. There's no register. But do commit. Make a commitment. Look at what's happening Turn back to the front of the book where there's a space to write it down, and in those 10 weeks, write down which of the prayer gatherings you intend to be at. It's much more likely that you will be at a prayer gathering if now you have committed and you've written it down and it's in your diary. Do that. And then what do you do when you actually get together? Well, obviously, you should pray. And uh, what we're asking is that in terms of prayer, that you actually pray in terms of kind of time at least 30 minutes and maybe up to an hour. So uh, get together, hang out, drink tea, eat cake, but pray. Pray for at least half an hour. I'd suggest not going more than 60 minutes. Uh, keep it tight, but pray. When you get together, begin the evening by reading out the notes for each week of uh, our prayer gatherings. There are some notes in this booklet. Read those out. That will help give you some focus and some fuel for your prayers. It will help keep you on track rather than just drifting off. And each week is grounded in a scriptural prayer. That's where we're starting. There's a prayer from the Bible which begins the notes. And so we want to pray with the Bible. We want to pray like the Bible. So read the scriptural prayer. Get it into your soul. Pray it. Pray the words of scripture back to God. Use those examples of prayer to help fuel us in prayer. And the fifth thing, that means to use your voice, to be verbal. Now, silence is an important 
spiritual discipline, learning to be silent in the presence of God, to meditate, to contemplate the goodness of God. That's an important spiritual discipline. But in these prayer gatherings where we're looking to pray for between half an hour and an hour, it's not going to help us to have extended moments of silence. That tends to kill prayer gatherings. So speak up. Don't wait to think I've got to save my best prayer until the end and I've got to get the words perfectly formed before I can speak them out. We're not about professional standard praying. We're about the family of God enjoying the presence of God. And it doesn't matter how bumbling and stumbling your prayers are, just pray them. And when you're not praying out, pray with. When, when somebody else is praying, pray along with them. Say yes and amen, I agree. Get behind prayers verbally. Use your voice And then let's be expectant of what God is going to do. Let's be expectant of the Spirit of God working amongst us. Let's expect God to speak to us and through us. Let's be expectant of spiritual gifts. I'm expecting God to lead us in some things over these next few weeks because as we pray, we expect God to speak to us. We expect God to call some things to mind. We expect God to cause us to change course in some areas. So let's be expectant of the Spirit of God working amongst us. And last practical tip is to pray big. Let's have prayers which have some scope, some passion, some vision behind them. Let's not just pray, be with Auntie Ethel because her elbow's sore. Let's pray for the kingdom of God to break out. Let's pray big prayers. Last thing before I get into the word is to recommend some books. If it helps you to read some things about prayer, I've got four books I want to recommend which I've found perfectly helpful, personally helpful. Not, maybe not perfectly helpful, but personally helpful. First one, Timothy Keller, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, as you expect from Tim Keller. Very thorough, very thoughtful, uh, looking at what prayer is like, how it works, how to do it. I found that a helpful book. Uh, next one I'd recommend is Paul Miller, A Praying Life. We recommended both of these a few years back, I think, when we were doing another series on prayer. This is a very kind of pastoral book. It's very real, very honest about how to pray and the realities of the difficulties of life. I found it helpful. These are both books probably to read slowly and meditate on. It might be that you say that you take one of them and spend the next three months between now and Christmas just slowly working your way through and and praying them. Third book I'd recommend, which is uh, the shortest book of the four, is Ironically, it's the shortest one, but it's the one that's called Pray Big uh, by Alistair Begg. This is a brilliant book, very practical. It's just based on the Apostle Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, where he prays for the church in Ephesus. Mighty big prayers. I found this so helpful myself in thinking about how to keep my prayers big rather than them sinking into kind of small little be with, uh, be with me type prayers. So I'd really recommend that one, and it is the shortest and easiest to read. And then the final one, How to Pray by Pete Gregg. This is probably the one with the most zing and zip in it um, and full of really helpful practical advice. Basically works through the Lord's Prayer. I'll be quoting from it a bit this morning. Some really good stuff in there. So I'd encourage you to get hold of one of those books and uh, use that to help you pray as we get going. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can come into your presence, that we are in your presence here this morning. And I ask as we begin this season of more prayer and as we have these 50 days 
where we're going to be gathering in groups across this town. I pray that we would encounter you more and more. I pray that this morning we might know the reality of God in the midst, God with us, that we'd learn to be a more prayerful people and see the power of prayer worked out in our day, in our generation, in our town. So be with us, King Jesus, I ask. Amen. Right. Jesus said, Matthew 6, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer which Jesus taught the disciples is a wonderful model and example of prayer. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, says it's simple enough to be memorized by small children and yet profound enough to sustain a whole lifetime of prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray and teaches us what to pray. And my personal experience has been that praying this prayer has been really helpful for me, often at times, especially if I'm struggling to pray, just don't know where to begin, where to start, how to pray. I start to pray the Lord's Prayer, and it helps me into the presence of God. It helps me to start to pray bigger prayers, helps me to keep focused, teaches me how to pray, what to pray. It's a wonderful model of prayer for us. So we're going to look at it uh, line by line and see how we can apply it to our prayer lives. First thing is that prayer is relational. Our Father in heaven. God, our Father. One thing to note about that straight away is the corporate nature of prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray and he teaches them to pray our Father. It's us, it's we, it's together. And over this season, we're going to be gathering to pray. Of course, pray when you're on your own, but we're especially looking to pray when we gather together. There's a power, a dynamism, a a bodiness about the people of God getting together to pray. Our Father. The thing about this prayer and the way it starts, our Father, is that it's in some ways in danger of being far too over familiar to us. We're so used to saying our Father. It's a prayer that pretty much everybody, even those who haven't got much of a church history, maybe at school were taught this prayer, our Father. It can sound very over familiar. And we need to see the wonder of this, that we come to God and we call God, not just God, not just Lord, but we call God Father. We can come to our Father in heaven, call him Father. And it's also strange, it's amazing, it's miraculous that we get to call God, dear Father, Abba, Father. This wonder, this miracle which is made possible by our union with Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We're not praying to an impersonal object or force. We're not touching wood. We're coming to Father in heaven. That's very different from how other people pray. It's Christians alone who can come to God and say, Father, we know God as our Father. The other day, Grace and I were with uh, Morris and Grace, a couple who are at our 502 congregation, and they're originally from Zambia, and we were asking them about how they got together, and they told us a story of their courtship, that in Zambian culture, when they were growing up, the boy essentially was meant to be invisible until the relationship gets pretty serious, and at that point, an intermediary is involved who's a 
friend of the young man and also a friend of the family, somebody trusted by all. And he kind of goes as a representative to the family of the girl and says about this young man, who of course they're aware of, but so far they've pretended to ignore. And if the family are happy to receive him, they prepare a feast and then they send with the intermediary a, a, a selection of this feast to take to the young man. And that's a sign that he is now welcome into their house and he can eat whatever he likes when he's there. He's invited to start becoming part of the family. I thought it was a beautiful picture of how God treats us. There's a proximity, there's an immediacy about our relationship with the Father. If you're a Christian, the feast has been set out. You're welcome in. You can open the fridge door. It's all yours. He's close to us. He loves us. He cares for us. Why? Because there's an intermediary, Jesus who has come to us and has enabled us then to come into the presence of God. Jesus is the one who's made a way for us to come to God and know him as Father. And coming to the Father means coming in joy. It's a question of love. You come into this love relationship with God the Father, and then you're shaped in and by that relationship of love with God the Father. Those of you here this morning who don't yet know God, this is what's on offer. There's a feast on offer. There's an intermediary. There's Jesus, fully God and fully man, the one who's made a way by which we human beings can come into the presence of God and know him as Father. He's the one who sets out a feast. If you don't know God as Father today, you can. You look to Jesus, the intermediary, and he will bring you to the Father. You can know him. You can come to the feast. He's our Father. He's close to us. And yet he's our Father in heaven. That means that he sees everything that goes on in the earth. There's nothing that escapes our Father's knowledge, nothing that catches him by surprise. And so we can have this confidence. He's got this. Whatever it is that's going on in our lives, in our nation, he's got this. He sees it. He knows it. We can trust him, our Father in heaven. Second thing is that prayer is reverential, hallowed be your name. We're the Father's family, but we're not to be over-familiar with God. We live in a casual age, and we're not very good at reverence. We're suspicious of it. We're mistrustful of authority figures, and we kind of bring authority figures down by its first names only. That's a big mistake when it comes to God. We shouldn't treat God any more casually than we would treat an erupting volcano. Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. His name is holy, it's consecrated, it's sacred, it's to be revered. God is holy. And when we come to our Father in heaven in prayer, what we're doing is reorientating ourselves. We're thinking less of ourselves and more of him. We're recognizing again that he's the boss, not me. He's my Father who loves me. He set out a feast for me, but... Hallowed be your name. You're holy. It also means that we're praying for more people to see the holiness of God. You know, to live in ignorance of the holiness of God is disastrous. And this is how so many are living. People are just ignorant of how holy God is. And to live in ignorance of the holiness of God is disastrous. We need to be praying that the world would see that God is Father who's holy. Hallowed be your name. 
And we have this dynamic in prayer then that we come with this incredible confidence and incredible security. Abba, Father, Daddy, the feast is set out. And we come with awe, amazement that we're able to come and stand before him at all. The God who is holy, hallows, welcomes and receives us. Mm. Next thing is that prayer is expansive. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray for the coming of the kingdom. This is the kingdom of God is where we see God's rule, God's way being worked out. It's when we see things being done with justice and where we see righteousness and when things are done to the glory of God. And this means that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, that's a much bigger prayer than our earthly worries. It's a bigger prayer than our worries about Brexit and all that's going on. It's, at the moment, everything is so kind of ah, just raw and you always get nervous about getting into conversation with somebody in case it causes a disagreement and there's so much turmoil. And, but we kept, praying about the kingdom of God coming is a bigger issue than whatever happens with the UK and the EU. We're praying for the breakout of God's kingdom. We're praying for his righteousness, his justice, his glory, and that is bigger, more important, and longer lasting than any of the affairs of men. We've got bigger prayers to pray. We've got bigger fish to fry. And so we need to pray this, your kingdom come. We need to pray it for our own lives. Lord, in my life, would your kingdom come? Would I live with righteousness. May I treat other people justly. May, may I live in a way which honors and recognizes your rule, your supremacy, the, the, the forgiveness I've received and enable them to minister to others. Lord, let me be a kingdom representative myself. We need to pray for our church. Gateway Church, may we be a place where the kingdom of God is evident amongst us, where we're seeing evidence of God's power, where we're praying and stuff is happening, where Miracles happen because we pray and ask our Father and he hears and he acts where there's demonstrations of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God where there's real family and love and health and honesty and integrity and purity. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for our town. This is a great picture that the uh, BCP councillor now using, and he currently it's a bit fuzzy on this screen, but uh, uh, aerial view of the conurbation, sandbanks over that side, Hengersbury Head on that side, Boscombe Pier, Bang, slap, in the middle. 400,000 people. We need to pray in our town for the kingdom of God to break out. It was amazing yesterday to do that 30-mile loop, which wasn't even, didn't cover probably even half the conurbation. And think about the scope and the scale of the place where we live. And we need to see God's kingdom breaking out in Bournemouth, Paul and Christchurch. We need to pray for our nation. God, let your kingdom come in our nation. Our sin-sick, crazy, crazed nation. Let your kingdom break out. And in the nations of the world, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not just praying small prayers. We're praying for God's breakthrough, the kingdom of God. Prayer then is dependent. Give us today our daily bread. Why should we pray for bread when the world is full of the stuff? We're not starving. What this prayer does is it recognizes our creatureliness. 
when we pray like this, it requires an appropriate humility. We come before our Father in heaven, the one who is king of a kingdom, and we say to him, Father, Lord, give us today our daily bread. And I recognize I'm not in control in the end. I recognize I'm only a creature. You're the creator. I recognize I'm dependent. Ultimately, I'm dependent upon you. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, what we're doing is recognizing that all the good things that we have in life are his grace, pure and simple. Every good thing we enjoy, every pleasure we have, it's God's grace, pure and simple. And wherever we have need, we're to come and say, Lord, this day give us daily bread. Whatever it is that we need, where we need that fresh supply of heavenly bread, we're to ask the big things and the trivial things. Pete Gregg says this, One of the greatest theological questions of our time in the realm of petitionary prayer appears to be whether or not we should ask God for parking spaces. I've seen rooms light up with debate on this one thorny conundrum. What do you think? Should we pray for parking spaces or not? Nancy has a great faith for parking spaces. Whenever we go to the beach, if she's in the car, even in the height of summer, she says, we will get a parking space because we always do when I'm in the car. (laughs) And I think we pretty much always have, haven't we? Never had to, she doesn't like walking. We've never had to drive, never had to walk anywhere because we always managed to park near to the beach because of Nancy's faith for parking spaces. Pete Gregg goes on, and it seems to me that the answer is clear. Yes, we should indeed ask God to give us parking spots. Why? Because when we pray for places to park, (laughs) this is brilliant, we become the kind of people who worship God's. For a patch of concrete outside a supermarket on a rainy Saturday in January. That really struck me because in terms of my personality and my belief about the sovereignty of God and all the rest, I'm reluctant to pray for parking spaces. Because I think it's too trivial and God's got bigger things to worry about. And Nancy believes in praying for parking spaces. I don't so much, but I thought this was powerful. Yes, actually it gives you a reason to worship. It's a trivial prayer in a sense, but if God provides it, give us this day our daily bread, give me a parking space, he provides it, thank you, Lord, it directs our hearts towards God. Okay, you say, but what would you have got that parking space if you hadn't asked God for it? Did it only become available when you prayed? Mm. And my answer to your excellent question is that I honestly don't know and I honestly don't care. I'm sure there are clever theologians, philosophers, and quantum physicists out there who can enlighten us, but in the meantime, while they tweak their calculations and analyze the original Greek manuscripts, I'm trying to be less cynical, more prayerful. It's a great example. Let's be less cynical. Let's be more prayerful because prayer is dependent. Give us this day our daily bread. Next thing, prayer is honest. Forgive us our debts. We are debtors. Our cultural narrative is that we are victims. The Bible tells us that we're debtors. It's very different. An honest prayer is like a bucket of cold water being poured on your head. It kind of wakes you up. Our lives, the reality is, have not reached, have not matched up to God's standards. We are in God's debt. Now, when we pray... Forgive us our debts. This isn't a cringing prayer. 
Because those of us who know Christ knows that he has dealt with our sins. And this means that when we pray, forgive us, we pray knowing that forgiveness is ours and so we can claim it. Actually, we kind of demand it. Forgive me because I know I'm forgiven because of what you have done, Christ Jesus. What this really is about, it's an issue of communion. Is there anything that is putting some grit in this relationship between me and God? Now, that happens all the times in all the time in human relationships, you know, when you're, somebody you're close to and suddenly the temperature drops in the room because of something that's happened and there's an awkwardness between you because of something that's been said or not said or done or not done and you can ignore it or you can bluff your way through it but it's always much better to deal with it. It's much better to get the grit and sort it out and when we come to God and say, forgive us our debts, that's what we're doing. We're just dealing with the muck again, which would keep us from knowing our communion with God. And then prayer is generous. We also have forgiven our debtors. Now, there's a remarkable assumption here in the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He teaches that his disciples, he assumes that they will have forgiven. And you know, that doesn't really line up with what we know about Jesus' disciples, For example, in Luke 9, we read about James and John, who when Jesus is once kind of ridiculed in a town, they say, shall we call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's how the disciples are more likely to respond than we forgive you. And it's easy for us to hold on to hurts, to hold on to slights, to store them up, file them away, keep them all packed up, packed in our minds neatly, categorized, catalogued, arranged, ready to call to mind at any moment. We all have those things. And now I'm prone to that. I can do that. One of the things I can be most prone to do that with, or the people I can be most prone to do that with, is motorists when I'm riding my bike. Because several days a week, I cycle from my house in Ashley Cross up to the office here on Alder Road and navigate the John Lewis roundabout, and some moron tries to kill me. And it's very easy for me to, I can think actually of a whole bunch of people, confrontations with motorists over the years, and I need to be like Jesus told us to be as we have forgiven our debtors. It's, in the end, most of them aren't deliberately trying to kill me. Some of them have, but most of them aren't. They're just morons. It's not their fault. (laughs) They can't help being morons. They just don't know any better. So Lord, forgive them and help me to forgive them. And the reality is that we can afford to be magnanimous. We can as Christians. Uh, Where we started this morning, Psalm 37, I was reading this yesterday morning and I was really struck by this. A few verses on from where we were reading, Psalm 37, verse 8, it says this, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. If you're a Christian, there's no point getting stressed about the morons or anybody else or anything else. Why? Because God's going to deal with it in the end. And what's our destiny? Well, we're going to inherit the land. We can afford to be generous because actually in Christ, God gives us all things. It means we don't have to be unforgiving. It means we don't have to keep that catalogue of past wrongs, past wrongs and hurts and slights filed away in our brains. No, we can... Come to God, we know his forgiveness of us. Wow, I was a debtor, you forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. And we can be generous to others. I forgive. It's just not worth hanging on to. Let it go. 
we're going to inherit all things. God will put all things to right. Sometimes we see extraordinary examples of this. A classic example from Christian stories over the last uh, century is the story of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy, many of you will know the story, uh, were uh, Dutch women who sheltered and shielded Jews during the occupation of Holland, finally discovered and sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy died. And uh, the story's often been told. This is how it's related in Pete Gregg's book. Several years after the war, Corrie ten Boom was speaking about her experiences in Munich when one of her former SS guards approached her at the end of the church service. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness anymore than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Wow. God has treated us so generously, we should treat others generously too. If we need to forgive someone, let's do that in the place of prayer. When we come and take bread and wine in a moment, if you need to forgive someone, forgive them. Let it go. Hand it to God. Last thing is that prayer is ruthless. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Praying is engaging in spiritual warfare. Prayer recognizes the reality that we are vulnerable to our spiritual enemy, his schemes, and we need help from God. Left to ourselves, we would be led into temptation. We need the Lord to lead us away from it. Left to ourselves, we'd be soft pickings for the evil one. We need God to shield and protect us. This is what the Apostle Peter says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have a spiritual enemy who wants to devour us. And so we need to pray for the Holy Spirit's help in resisting the devil means we need to pray for God's protection over ourselves, over our family, over our friends, over our church, over our town, over our nation. And we personally, we corporately as church here together, we don't want, we can't be compromised by sin. Sin crouches at the door. It's like a lion. 
We need to resist. We need the Lord's protection. We don't want to be compromised by sin. Sin can worm its way into our lives, into a church community, and do such destruction. We don't want that to happen. It means we need to stay alert. We need to be clothed in the armor of God. We need to know the Lord's help towards us. We know, we need to know, we need to believe, we need to pray, we need to receive, we need to claim that the cross has delivered us of our sins. Jesus has delivered us, and we are to live in the truth and the reality of that. So, laws, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Let's pray. Will you stand and let's pray together a prayer that will appear on the screen. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Help us to pray recognizing who you are and what you are like. Let us see your kingdom come in our town in our day. Keep our hearts soft towards you and other people. And provide us with all we need for the mission you have called us to. Amen. Lord, we do ask these things in your name. Thank you, Father. We can come and call you Father. I pray that we come with that liberty, freedom, like children skipping into your presence, coming to the feast that you set out because of our great intermediary, Christ Jesus. We would come with reverence and awe, recognizing how holy and pure you are. That we would come praying for the kingdom to break out. We come as forgiven people who are forgiving towards others and that we would stand clothed, not in our self-righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ and in the armor of God that we might be delivered from sin and resist the evil one. Proclaiming your name in this place. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.